Today's scripture is from John 5, 1 through 17. Please read with me the verses in bold. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the, the word of the Lord. Good morning, Grace Sacramento. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, okay, full disclosure. Uh, my wife, Sam, and I had a conversation last night. Uh, because I think last week we accidentally kind of dressed the same. And so I picked this, not knowing that apparently this is also how Pastor Brad dresses. So <laughs> as Brad got up here this morning, we looked at each other and said, uh-oh. But oh well. Uh, good morning. Um, <clears throat> when I was six years old, I had figured out what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be the President of the United States of America. I had ambitions in life, okay? Now, I don't, I don't think you could say they were very serious ambitions. I mean, I was only six. But after I informed my, my grandmother, who was out visiting, I told her about my life goals. She asked me which political party I was going to join. Now, being six years old, this was my first time hearing about political parties. And in my mind, this only added to the glamour of being president, because throwing parties sounded like a good time. Everyone was gonna love me because my plan was to cut taxes, which all the adults said would be a good idea if they paid less taxes, and I was gonna throw parties. That was my ambition. Honestly though, as I grew and as I matured, I was still interested in trying to be somebody. I would work hard in school. I tried to be a good kid. And through middle school and high school, I worked really hard to achieve, to try and get good grades, to make my parents happy, even trying to have good church attendance and thought that maybe I really could be somebody, maybe even a president. And then I could help change the world for the better. 
Then came my first year of college at UC Berkeley. There had been a few heated elections. Now, this was like 2000, and then like, you know, 2003 is when I started college, so things have gotten a little more heated since then. But even at that time, I felt disillusioned, and honestly pretty, started feeling pretty cynical about politics. Personally, I realized at this time also the depths of my own sinfulness. That I had habits and patterns of living that just left me feeling ashamed, feeling like I couldn't change. And more to the point, it was this inability to change my behavior that left me feeling hopeless and even despairing of life. If I couldn't fix my own character, then weren't my achievements just empty and hollow? Sure, things look good on the outside. I could put on a good face. I could, I could go to school. I could give the right answers to my teachers. I could say things were fine to my parents. But on the inside, I felt rotten. If I couldn't change my own heart, then how could I actually help change the world? The world was just too broken, and honestly, so was I. Maybe you have felt similarly frustrated in your own life, in your own heart. Maybe you feel stuck and hopeless in other ways. Maybe you feel like your life is simply spent running on the treadmill of performance, whether it's for, your, for parents, for a boss, for a spouse, for others in your life. And so you end up waffling between pride and frustration. What can we do when cynicism overtakes us and there seems to be no solution in sight? What can we do when trusting in ourselves only leads to self-righteousness or despair? This morning, as we continue our series in the book of John, we're looking at people's encounters with Jesus, and we come across the story that we just read in John 5 that addresses this problem of trusting in ourselves. And we see that because the Son of God pursues us with grace, we find hope through trusting in him instead of ourselves. John illustrates this by introducing us to three men, the cynic, the legalist, and the son of God. So first, let's look at the cynic. The scene opens in John 5, right? It's, it's, uh, we're in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of the Jews. It doesn't say what feast this is. We don't know. But everyone's there for the holiday. And we find ourselves at this particular pool. And it's surrounded by the disabled. They're, they're there to get healed. And I don't know if you noticed as we were reading the scripture this morning, we kind of jumped from verse 3 to 5. That, that's not a typo. Uh, originally, uh, verses, uh, the second half of verse 3, uh, John 5, verse 3, and then verse 4, were actually not in the earliest manuscripts, but were probably a later edition just to give some cultural context. Because we don't, we've never been, you and I, we've never been there. We don't necessarily understand what's going on at this pool. Maybe there's some things that John initially assumed of his audience when he first wrote this, and these were added to explain so if you, if you follow along on the PowerPoint, verses 3 and 4 um, were later, later read like this. In these, the, the five colonnades that we read about, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. This seems to like to maybe be some sort of Jewish folklore that maybe with maybe some popular beliefs that people believed then, things that later uh, someone added as a marginal note into into the Book of John for people like you and I who who didn't know this that this is what people believed. This belief that an angel would come and would stir the water somehow the waters would start moving and this belief that if you were the first one in you would get healed, and this is also reflected in what we read in verse seven. When Jesus asks the man about getting healed, he responds, 
saying that another always steps down before him. He can't get there first. And so as we, as we enter into the story, we see there's less of a focus really on seeking God, but really on this popular belief on magic, on something about angels. And it's at this pool, at this pool that we meet the disabled man, who I call the cynic. The text simply says that he'd been an invalid for 38 years. No reason is given, no cause is given. It's unclear if he at one point could walk, but due to an injury, he had been laid up for 38 years. Or perhaps he was born this way and he'd never walked a day in his life. For whatever reason, John doesn't tell us. But what is clear is that he had suffered for a long time. Imagine being unable to work, unable to provide for yourself, unable to travel freely, to see people, to do what you want for nearly 40 years. He had been at this pool for a long time, and verse, uh, verse 6 and 7 make it clear that he is alone, that there is no one helping him. So it's not surprising at this point that we find him disappointed and resigned. And that's why I call him the cynic, because we find him going through the motions. He's still at the pool, but he's just kind of going through the motions, and the magic has failed to deliver any hope for him. We don't know what all the different things that maybe he's put his hope in these last 38 years, but we do know that he doesn't seem to expect God to intervene, maybe not even to care. You see, we don't find him at the temple. He's not praying. He's not offering any sacrifices if he had anything to offer. Uh, he's not seeking the Lord in this. He's, he's laying by a pool, kind of hoping for this angel to come, and maybe he can get into the water. His hope is in some sort of superstition about the pool. And so we see that in verse 6, he doesn't actually answer Jesus' question about wanting to be healed. Instead, he blames others. He complains about his circumstances. He gives his excuses. And as DA, uh, comment, uh, commentator D.A. Carson notes, it sounds more like the crotchety rumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. Clearly this man, this is a man who had hoped and had trusted in himself only to find despair. He doesn't seem to appeal to God. He doesn't even actually ask Jesus for help. He just grumbles about his situation and he grumbles about the others around him. As I read this, I see it's not unlike the excuses that we see Adam giving God all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3, where for his own sin, he blames Eve and he blames God for, for creating Eve. And if I'm honest, it also sounds a bit like me. I can be quick to blame my attitude or failures on others, grumbling something about the kids, grumbling about you know, some stereotype about the Gen Z college students that I work with. But others aside, I'm quick to minimize my own contributions to my problems. And this is why the realization in college that I could not change myself was so devastating. And sadly, another reason I call this man the cynic is that even after Jesus physically heals the man in John 5, his cynicism remains. He's more interested in getting help into the pool, in getting healing, than actually understanding Jesus. He merely uses Jesus as a means to an end, which is why he's so quick to throw Jesus under the bus to the Jewish leaders, right? They ask him why he's carrying his mat, and he said, well, this guy told me to. And then he realizes he doesn't know who this guy is, so later he finds and tells on Jesus. The fact that he fails to understand the significance 
of Jesus is so evident in the fact that he didn't even bother to find out who his healer was. When he was first questioned, he said, I don't know, some guy healed me and told me to pick up my mat and walk. He didn't even bother learning Jesus' name. See, all this highlights the need for transformation that is beyond the physical. He didn't need to just be physically healed. Jesus healed his legs, but what about this man's heart? What if this man had actually followed Jesus? This morning, where do you feel stuck in life? Where are you like the paralyzed man, overwhelmed in circumstances, despaired, you're in despair without hope? Is it maybe the meaninglessness or the monotony that you find at work? Is it a conflict or a frustration with a loved one? Is it disappointment with yourself where you feel like you should be farther along than you currently are? Christ wants to meet you in those depths of sorrow and have you take your eyes off of yourself. Because of Christ, we do not live as those in despair. When we trust in him rather than ourselves, we have hope. Second, we meet a legalist. I'm going to be honest here. It's not actually just one guy. It's, a, it's actually a group. It's the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. But for the sake of having three guys, we'll just call him the legalist. Because the scene shifts in verse 9. And we see the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, take the stage. We see that it's not just a feast. It's not just any old feast day. It's also the Sabbath. So what's the problem here? In the Hebrew scriptures, God had commanded his people to keep the Sabbath, a special day of rest, each week. He commanded them that on this day that they should not work, and instead they were to rest and to worship him. And yet, the Old Testament never actually defines precisely what work is. And yet, due to their ingenuity, and honestly, we do this as well, by this time the Jews had all kinds of rules about what was work and what wasn't work and how you should rest and how you shouldn't rest. And this man was in violation of those rules. Not God's law. He's, he's not doing anything the Old Testament said he couldn't do, <clears throat> but he was doing things that they said he couldn't do. He was carrying his mat, which is like, you know, a picture like a sleeping pad. It's not super heavy, but apparently it's work. And at this point, the Pharisees quickly forget about the mat because they discover that there are bigger fish to fry. Someone healed him on the Sabbath. Now, they don't necessarily stop talking about the mat because they're in awe of this healing, not because somehow this divine power is God's giving his stamp of approval on what has happened. No, they're actually just more concerned that even more work has gotten done on the Sabbath, and that God, though they did not recognize him, had somehow broken out of the box that they had tried to put him in with all their rules and definitions and laws. Another commentator writes, the presence of the healed man brings into focus the misperception of an impersonal power of God that Jesus is, is confronting in both the healed man and the Jews. Even though the healed man now walks, he does not yet truly see. And even though, though the, Jewish, the Jews are the teachers of God, they are still in need of being taught. You see, the, these leaders are so wrapped up in their rule-keeping that they missed the point. They kept focusing on the law of God while ignoring God himself. They saw God work in power. They saw a miracle happen. They saw God move in compassion through Jesus. And they only dug in deeper into their self-righteousness and hardening themselves against Jesus' teaching. They also hoped and trusted in themselves. But unlike the despair of the disabled man, the Pharisees' trusting actually led to pride. Because the only thing worse than trusting yourself and failing 
is actually succeeding. Because they are just as lost. They also have an encounter with Jesus, but they also miss the significance of it and dare to dictate how, and particularly when, God can work. You see, God in his wisdom and his grace rarely works in the ways that we expect. He works beyond our categories, apparently even using volleyballs. The Gospels are full of these different surprising encounters with Jesus, just like this one. For me, in my own life, prior to the hopelessness that I felt in college at being unable to change my own heart, I was a proud person. I don't know if you heard in the introduction all the things I tried to do well in school, I tried to get good grades, I pushed myself to take harder classes so I could get into a good school. And I was very proud that I went to UC Berkeley. Honestly, I still am. You can ask my wife, she went to, she's a Davis alum and I like to remind her occasionally that <clears throat> being the University of California, Berkeley invented the UC system and therefore invented her school as well. She pride told me that if I did well, then God should make my life better. That if I work to achieve, 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 that maybe I could impress God or somehow put him in my debt. So imagine, imagine my surprise my freshman year when God did the unexpected and disrupted my life in college, showing me the emptiness of a life living for myself. For you, where are you putting your hope in your own abilities instead of God? Where are you becoming proud and looking down on others? You see, we are not good rule keepers. We're not the good rule keepers that we think we are. Even as Christians, honestly, we probably have even more rules because we have a whole other testament, right? We have even more rules, but we still struggle. We still don't keep them. And our pride is just another instance of breaking God's law. So like with the legalist, Christ wants us to see beyond our behavior management, beyond our ability to keep the rules, and to actually behold him instead. Because of Christ, we do not trust in ourselves or in our ability to do all the right things. We trust in him rather than ourselves, and that gives us hope. The third person that we meet throughout this whole, this whole passage is the Son of God. You might be asking, what do I mean when I talk about the cynic and the legalist because of Christ, because of Christ, like we can live differently? What I mean is that because the Son of God pursues us, he comes with grace. The fact that God became a man that he came to rescue us. That what actually stands out most at the very beginning of this passage, of all the setup that John gives, is that in verse six it says that Jesus saw the man, Jesus knew of his suffering. He knew what he had been going through. That unlike some of the other healing, healing miracles that we find, where people sought Jesus calling out, for healing, calling out uh, for him to do something for them, to be made new, we see that actually Jesus chose this man. That he, had, he saw him, he knew him, and he had compassion. And he approaches him and asks him the first question. This is pure grace. This is not something that this man deserved. There's nothing that this man did before, during this passage, and definitely after, that could possibly warrant Jesus doing this man a favor. If anything, this guy, just, I mean, he threw, he threw Jesus under the bus to the Pharisees, right? Jesus did not owe this man anything. It is pure grace that he heals him. In fact, not only does he approach him and heal him, we find that he tracks him down a second time to encourage him to turn from his ways. Jesus isn't done with him yet. And Jesus does all of this at a great cost to himself because as we read, this encounter, this healing on the Sabbath, 
begins the hostility and persecution that would ultimately send Jesus to the cross. The Son of God came graciously to save us when we could not help ourselves and when we were not seeking him. That's true for this paralyzed man, that's true for me, and that's true for you. We see in this healing the Son of God has authority over the world. We see that this healing is one of the signs that John writes about that point to the fact that Jesus is more than just a man, that he is God. He is the son of God with power over the physical world, able to heal, able to impart life. Jesus' question in verse six clearly points to something more than just physical healing. One comment, he asks the man, do you want to be healed? One commentator says, this question is either a rebuke, a test, or straightforward, but either way, it is very weird. It is an odd question to be asked. This, this would, to ask. This would be like if you were in line at the box office to get tickets and someone behind you tapped you on the shoulder and says, so, you wanna see a movie? Like, of course, right? We're, they're standing at this pool. This man hasn't walked in 38 years. Who doesn't want to be healed? Shouldn't the answer be obvious? Why is Jesus asking this question? <clears throat> we see here that clearly he's asking a much deeper question. He's asking about if this man wants spiritual healing that can come from God alone, which is why we see him again in verse 14 show up to warn the man to turn from his ways, that he came not just to heal this man's legs, but to heal the root of sin in his heart. The cynic's deepest issue is not his disability, but his unbelief. We also see that the Son of God has authority over the Sabbath, Jesus' response to the Jewish leaders similarly points to the fact that he is God. The Jews acknowledge that God alone can work on the Sabbath in the sense that he created the universe and so he has to sustain it every day. He has to provide for his people. In order for his people to rest, someone must be protecting them from his, their enemies. That God is able to do all these things on the Sabbath, that the Jews were okay with that. And so Jesus affirms that God is his father, and as the son of God, he is doing the same thing. He came to provide, to heal, to sustain. And this is why we didn't read, uh, continuing on in verses 18 and 19, that the Pharisees understand what Jesus is implying here, that he is saying that he is equal to God, that Jesus himself is claiming to be God, hence the, the beginning of the persecution and hostility towards him. In other, other gospel accounts, we see that Jesus actually refers to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. <clears throat> By healing on the Sabbath, Jesus is actually inviting them to see the small-mindedness and the pride of their rule-keeping and the arrogance of trying to put God into a box. Instead, he invites them to find true life, which you can read about in the latter part of John 5, and to invite them into a relationship with God as their father, because he is also addressing their deepest issue, which is also unbelief. So why does John include this story in the account of the life of Jesus? If we're honest, it doesn't have a good ending, right? It, no one's gonna make a Hollywood movie where it ends with the guy who heals, gets healed, betrays Jesus and walks away and everyone gets mad and walks away and Jesus is just kind of left there. You know, no one believed him at the end of the story. See, we see that by the end, the cynic and the legalist are still lost. They're still trusting in themselves. The reality is we don't know what became of the healed man. Perhaps the story is only the beginning of a longer story of God healing his heart through a long process. 
I, I was thinking about that even as Mandy was sharing her story of being healed and then even later on wondering like, well, does God still work in that way? Even though she experienced that, we don't know what ended up happening with this man. We know that many of the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. That others, like we read about uh, a few weeks ago in John 3, Nicodemus evidently became his followers. So not all of them walked away. But we do see that, at least by the end of this story, the majority of people failed to understand God's heart. And so they missed out on this encounter with Jesus to understand what Jesus was really offering them. Because as, we, as we've been reading these stories, we see that in John 3, John, uh, Jesus is talking about new life, about being born again when he's talking to Nicodemus. Last week, the Samaritan, with the Samaritan woman, he offered living water to her that would well up to, uh, that would um, give her eternal life, which he also talks about in John 7, springs of living water that he can give that truly satisfy us. And in John 10, he's very clear when he says that he came to give life and to give it to the full. But this encounter in John 5, it's left open. Maybe it's left uh, unclear what's, what's going to happen to these people. Do they, do they later realize wh- who Jesus is and what he's done, and they repent and they begin to follow him? We don't know. Maybe it's left open for us to ponder the message and how we, as despairing cynics and proud legalists ourselves, will respond to the Son of God. It's very clear in this story that Jesus is not stingy. He's not reluctant to give but gives generously and abundantly. Don't miss that, because by the end of the book of John, he will actually give himself. You see, later in the, John, in the book of John, we read about a different feast of the Jews, the Passover, where the Jews commemorated God's rescue of them from Egypt under Moses. When God rescued them and told them to get up and to walk out of Egypt. But on, on this holiday of the Passover, Jesus was later beaten and broken to the point that he actually could not get up and take his cross, that he needed help carrying it to the place where he would be nailed to it. Jesus was nailed to that cross on our behalf to die in our place for our sin, for our unbelief. That once again, through this, God was doing the unexpected. He was working in ways beyond our categories. That he came to deal with the root of our sin, our unbelief, desire to trust in ourselves and not in God. He did so to free us from ourselves and to bring true, deeper healing. Like with the cynic, Jesus offers hope and healing that goes beyond the physical. He came to offer us eternal life in him. And like with the legalists, Jesus offers us hope beyond rule-keeping and our ugly pride. He offers us a relationship with God as Father not as a taskmaster. That all comes in him. So as we close, John wants us to see in this passage in John 5 that we've read that because the Son of God pursues us with grace, we find hope through trusting in him instead of ourselves. In my own story, while I began college at a low point, feeling hopeless and unable to change my heart, That was actually where I encountered Jesus. My freshman year at Berkeley, of all places, I realized that I was trying to run my own life, to be my own God, and I was miserable. I was trying to run the treadmill of performance that had gotten me there, uh, but as a student, honestly, it left me feeling empty, and I didn't want to keep going. In my heart, I knew that if Christ really was 
who I had heard that he was. I needed to follow him and to make him the center of my life. I needed him to guide and direct me, to empower me to live differently. I needed his Holy Spirit to come change my heart where I had failed and failed to do it myself. And it all began with putting my hope and trust in him and receiving that grace and salvation that only he can offer. That was more than 20 years ago. I had a lot more hair back then. And he is still at work in my heart and in my life. He gives me hope when I despair. He humbles me when I become proud. How about you? Where do you find yourself this morning confronted by our gracious Savior? I encourage you to receive this good news into your heart, whether it's for the first time this morning or for the thousandth time, if you recognize that you've once again been trying to live your life on your own, bring that to Jesus. He wants to meet with you here this morning and invite you into a deeper relationship and a deeper trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this good word. Thank you, Jesus, that you graciously came to rescue us. Thank you that you came recognizing our need, that we are a proud and miserable people, cannot rescue ourselves. Thank you for the reminder of grace and how you pursue us through Christ. And thank you that you alone have the power to change our hearts and to renew us from the inside out. Help us this morning to trust in you, to hope in you as we live through this week, we go out into our lives, that we would find rest for our souls in you that can only be found in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.